0: Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to "Until We Meet Again," brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Psalm 25, verses 15 through 21. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall help me out of the net. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring thou me out of my sufferings. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. My guest today is Merritt Herring. He's a retired letter carrier whose life abruptly changed forever on July 3, 2007. It was the day when his 16-year-old son, Elliot, drowned at Cannon Beach after getting caught in a sneaker riptide. He writes about the whole experience in his book, Lessons Learned from a Son's Life and Death. Merritt, I'm thrilled you're here. I appreciate you coming on until we meet again to talk about this. And this is going to be the first part of a two-part series since your story is so powerful. And I think it's really important to talk about the actual event in the first part and how that all played a role in your life and really how you've moved on to your healing. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Kindly. There's a photo of you on the very back of the book, and it's the last picture that was taken of all five of you. You have four children and yourself, and it was a photo that you say, it's the merit in that photo is no longer here. The likeness of that man, it's departed, and there's a heaviness that's not in the place. And it's something that you say that we can definitely see in your eyes. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, It was around mid-April. No, I'm sorry. It was May 6th of 2007. My children at the time, um, three of them lived down at the beach in Cannon Beach with their mom. And I had gone to uh, a concert that night. I had driven down from Portland, picked up two of my kids in Cannon Beach, driven up to Astoria. One of my daughters was in a concert with the North Symphonic Coast band in Astoria, We got done with the concert came back dropped them off at their house and i'm tired i want to go i have to go to work the next day in portland and it's about nine o'clock at night or so and i want to go home i'm tired and my son who also was living at the beach at the time with his mother says he got gotten a new camera for his birthday a couple of minutes sooner he says dad says can i get a picture of everybody before you go home i said no says we'll do it next time bud. okay he goes, well, just one picture. It'll just just take a few seconds. I said, Elliot says, I'm really tired. He says, it's been a long day. Says says, I promise we'll get a good picture next time. And then he asked me one more time. He says, I promise that it'll just take a few seconds. And I can only attribute what happened next to the Holy Spirit. Something kicked my heart and said, for Pete's sakes, let him take a picture. I had a an old Chevy Blazer at the time, a school bus yellow Blazer. And so Elliot set the camera on the hood of the blazer and we went back and took a picture of the four kids and myself, um, which, which if you look at the picture on the book, it's a little bit tilted because the hood was a little bit tilted and it ended up being a picture for the ages because it was indeed the very last picture ever taken of my four children with myself. Uh, Elliot was gone uh, about six weeks later and uh, said it was it was a, just a magical, magical day and I said... It's a day I remember as because it was 567. I have a thing about numbers and dates. And I found out years later, a little aside, on my mail route that I had for 27 years, a little boy was born on that mail route on May 6th, 2007. And I got to know him and his sister and his family very well. And to the day that I retired, I never called him by his first name. He was always just, hey, 567, how you doing? And he, he and his mom always thought that was kind of sweet because of the reason behind it.
0: And I bet he actually says, there was a man that used to call me 567. Wouldn't it be amazing if that was still his handle or his nickname today?
1: It, it, if I saw him, that's what I would still call him. And he, he wouldn't, I don't know if I even know his name, which is kind of embarrassing. He, he's just
0: 567. Yeah, little, little angel brought to your life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Nice. Exactly. So that's why that picture. But again, to get back to your original point, um, if you see photos of me now compared to that photo or any photo taken of me before July 3rd, there's something there on July 2nd that's not there on July 3rd. I don't know how to describe it. It's a different, in the lighting, it's a different, you use the word very accurately, a heaviness. Um, But I can, if I see a picture myself, I immediately know whether it's a before or after picture. There's not a doubt in my mind. It's just, is as obvious as the day is long.
0: Going back to that day that this all happened and you first got word that your son was Lost as I keep hearing her he's gone, that's what it keeps the words in the book gone. A very heavy word to use. It's amazing God's graciousness that you were at this symphony you're saying, and then you your daughter went and got in a vehicle with someone else, you had mm-hmm. got the call saying, You need to get down here, and in that moment, you were able to catch her and get her to come with you. She didn't have a cell phone, you didn't know where she was going, and that just think what a even crazier situation that would have been if you had to it had been horrendous,
1: yeah because I had received the phone call. I, I didn't really understand how serious it was yet. Uh, the kids' mom did not want me to, to grasp the entire situation because she needed me to drive safely from Astoria down to Cannon Beach. But I had to grab Valina, my youngest daughter, who had been in the concert. And I couldn't find her anyway. I'm going to the theater where she performed, no place. And I literally saw her as she was trying to get into a vehicle and drive away. It could have been three or four hours before we would have found her. And to have that on top of you know, already dealing with what had happened in Cannon Beach, it would have been too much. So it's one of a myriad of events over the next few days. that I look back and going, wow, God really had his hand in this. There's just blessing after blessing after blessing that you don't necessarily see at the time you're going through it because you're so overwhelmed with the um, horrendous event. But looking back, it's, it's like, whoa, <laughs> it's pretty amazing.
0: I think we in general we always separate ourselves from experiences in the news. We watch something and hear about a drowning or someone lost or a kidnapping and think, "Oh yeah, that's too bad," but we never get that that's could be our child. That mm-hmm. sense and I know you had that prayer and that please saying no, this really, this God don't let this be my child, and you turn the bluff, and there you are, and you're coming into Cannon Beach, and you see helicopters yes. and did in that moment, did that sink for you that that was helicopters for Elliot or was it just sort of helicopters?
1: no, it was very clear that these were coast guard helicopters, and i I think my heart sunk, even though I didn't technically know he was dead yet uh i was going it was I was ten minutes away from that moment. Coming around that corner and, and having hope upon hope that, you know, I've misunderstood that what the message was from, my, from his mom or whatever, and then seeing Coast Guard helicopters and thinking, this is really serious. Because they don't just call it a Coast Guard helicopter because some kid is splashing in the water and they can't get to him. It means that something is really serious. Uh, that, was a, that was a monumental moment for me.
0: And were there people actually standing in the ocean, in the waves, people with binoculars? What sort of scene unfolded when you drove down there?
1: It looked like a cheap disaster movie. I don't mean it to say to be flippant, but uh, we drove down into in Cannon Beach, parked the car at uh, the, kid's, uh, the kid's mom, her name is Cynthia, at Cynthia's home, and walked a few feet north. And all of a sudden, as I'm looking down the beach, there are uh, dozens, if not hundreds of people, there are ambulances, fire trucks, police cars. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of townsfolks on top of their pickups with binoculars glued to their eyes, and they had been like that for a couple hours by that time. Uh, Cynthia kept telling them, You know, he's gone, you need to stop looking, and they wouldn't because it says it can't be Elliot. We can't lose a, a local kid. Uh, if, if I remember right, I may have my numbers wrong. I believe that Elliot was the first local child to die. By drowning in Cannon Beach in something like thirty years, so the and, and he was a remarkable kid. I know it's easy for me to say that I'm his dad, but he really was. And the the uh, the community was really devastated by this. And so I walked out into this, and it was it was just it was, you know, it was just this maelstrom of of events going on down there with the calmness of the ocean lapping, you know, continually never stops. Of course.
0: So prior to him slipping away, he was there with two friends, just like an average day, just sort of hanging out, just playing and being safe.
1: Yes. And I've actually found out a little bit more about this since my book came out. Um, He had a dear, dear friend named Trish, and they hadn't really seen each other much that summer. Trish had uh, graduated from high school, I believe, and was getting ready to go away. And so They decided they wanted to spend the evening together. Trish was dating somebody at the time. And so the three of them decided to get together, and they didn't know whether they wanted to go to the park or go down and go swimming in the ocean. And it was my son, which I'm actually really glad, is the one who said, let's go play in the ocean. Now, you have to understand, my son was not a strong swimmer. So when I say play in the ocean, I don't mean he was way out in the waves. They were on the beach. They were literally standing in about between 18 to 36 inches of water, just playing in the sand, dinging around the way that three teenagers would. And my son never would turn his back in the ocean. So this was the, you know, when you talk about a freak accident, this was a freak of freak accidents. Um, They were down there. uh, They took a picture uh, of the three of them just being goofy, which is a dear, dear picture of me because for me because it's my son's last photo ever taken of him uh, with Trish and the other, and the young man. They had been in the water, I think, about 30 to 45 minutes and were just about getting ready to get out. And without warning, a sneaker wave came in, collapsed the sandbar they were standing on, swept them straight up into the air, and then swept them straight out into the sea. Uh, Trish says that they went from about 3 feet of water to 30 feet of water almost instantly. Um, She had a very difficult time getting herself safely back to land uh, her legs were all shredded with uh, all the, the, the um, logs and things that came crashing in on, with these waves. Uh, she was bloody, and she looked out, and, and this time, it's only been maybe 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds at the most, and already, Elliot was so far out, he was almost at the end of the wave, at the wave break. He was just a dot on top of the waves in a, in a minute's time. He went under twice, came up twice. Uh, people who saw him from a distance said he never panicked. He never screamed. At one point, he said, you need to come get me. I can't swim very well. But the people who watched it says he never started thrashing. He obviously was looking for, what am I supposed to do now? He went under the third time, and he didn't come back up.
0: It's amazing to me that you had the peace of mind when you had your first conversation with Trish, the good friend, to be able to say to her, don't let this one moment define your life. You've got a whole life out there. And to be the father of a lost boy at sea, to have that presence of mind, that's pretty humbling and amazing.
1: Well, and I appreciate that. But again, and I think I mentioned a little bit in the book, um, Cynthia had pulled me aside and wanted to meet me wanted to make sure that I knew that Trish and the young man with her had done everything they could to save Elliot's life. Nobody had made a mistake. Nobody had been irresponsible. And she wanted to make sure that I didn't respond in what would be a normal father's way and say, what did you guys do? What was wrong with you? And so by the time I had that first conversation with Trish, several minutes have gone by. I had seen her in the ambulance and I've never seen anybody whiter, uh, more pale in my entire life. And she was beyond upset. She was beyond whatever word you wanted to come up with, she was beyond that. And I, I, I'm i sitting here and I'm talking to her. It, it's now been 30 or 45 minutes after the event. And I'm thinking she has to live with... I'm imagining what's just happened. She saw it. And what she told me later on, which was actually worse, was she heard it. And so mm-hmm. I, all I could think of was this woman has gone through this. She's going to have this in her vision, in her conscience for the rest of her life. I don't want this to be the last thing she ever does and and her life
0: doesn't go anywhere,
1: and, and it hasn't. She's, she's a very successful young woman, and part of that story we'll talk about later, of course.
0: My guest today is Merritt Herring. He wrote the book Lessons from a Son's Life and Death. We're at the first of a two-part series here speaking to him about his life. So you share at one point in your book, the very first night had gone by. It's 3.25. The clock is telling you this in the morning. You're in the motel room. And you finally need to sleep. And you think to yourself, while you stare at the clock, you've only known your son has been gone for six to seven hours, but it felt like you had aged 10 years. Oh, yeah.
1: It's funny. I can even now, as I'm doing literally right now, I can close my eyes. I can still see that little clock with the pink face. And it says 325. And I'm going, I'm never going to be able to fall asleep for the rest of my life. I'm going to have this image of my son out in the ocean forever. And of course, God, in his grace, allowed me to get a couple of hours sleep. Um, And I was not alone that night. I had some help. Some people came and helped me greatly, which I definitely want to talk about.
0: I want to talk about that now. So you, from your congregation, from your life, you had beautiful people come and pray for you. You actually had your best friend and his wife show up. You had a lot of grace there.
1: Yes. um, I have been um, uh, surrounded in, in my entire life with... A plethora of amazingly deep friendships uh, from high school and college and churches, uh, but there's one friend better than any other uh, named Roger, and he happens to be about five feet away from us right now on the other side of the wall. And Roger, um, Roger's the kind of friend that you can't ever plan. Uh, our relationship began in November of 1975 over. Um, a combined love and 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 passion over good old fashioned rock and roll, um, the heavier the better, and our relationship just blossomed uh, over that time period, and we have stayed close and closer and closest for forty two almost forty three years now. He was um, the first person I called to let him know what had happened, and I and I honestly don't remember. I think I left you a message if I if I'm correct? I don't think we talked directly that first time. Um, <laughs> there he is. Yes, I remember you left me a message, and I didn't get right back to you, and I've always kind of felt a little guilty. that Oh, not a bit, <laughs> not a bit. And, and in, a, in a little side note, I know that he kept that message for several years uh, listening to the, the bleakness, and you could hear the ocean in the background and, and the cry of my voice. And So I left him a message, and I had other people to call. Well, unbeknownst to me, Cynthia, uh, again, my children's mother, uh, called Roger back and said, Roger says, you need to get here because Merritt doesn't know anybody here except us. And he needs somebody to support him. Well, Roger and Susie don't live in Cannon beach. They don't even live in Portland. They live down by Salem. So it wasn't like they could get in their car and get there in 10 minutes. And they knew they were going to have to stay there for several days. So they got in their car, packed immediately, drove all the way to Cannon beach. Um, I got back to uh, a motel where I was going to be staying at and was by myself for a little while, had a couple more phone calls. And then Roger and Susie uh, showed up on my doorstep and we wept together for a while. And then basically uh, Roger and Susie stayed there at that motel room for the next three days where I hardly ever saw them because I had all kinds of things to take care of, but they wanted to be there for me just in case I needed them. Which as it turned out, um, the next day, uh, I woke up about 5.30. It's the 4th of July, which is not my favorite holiday anymore. I never celebrate the 4th of July anymore. And it's the 4th of July day in Cannon Beach. There's going to be a parade. There's people everywhere uh, down at the Oregon coast. My oldest daughter, Maria, was in Germany at the time. She was on a um, school vacation, so to speak. And she not only was in in uh, Germany, she was about two hours away from any kind of civilization, and somehow we had to get a hold of her to tell her what had happened. Uh, the rest of the family, uh, Elliot's two other sisters, already knew, of course. So I I made it very clear to my family says I was the one that was going to call Maria. That's that's what a dad does. You don't leave that to the mom. You don't leave it to a sister. That's what dad does. So at around uh, six or six thirty that morning, I made my first phone call to somebody within the Warner Pacific College family. that She was attending Warner Pacific uh, at the time. And through a series of phone calls, finally got to the point where uh, they got a hold of the professor that was with them in Germany, and they were going to have her call me back in a few minutes. This was, um, still is the single worst moment of my entire life. My daughter called. She was surprised I had called her and was getting a hold of her. We had just talked the the night before. Hey, how's it going on the trip? How's Germany? Blah, blah, blah. So she said, what's up? So there's a movie called Capricorn One, one of my favorite movies. And there's a scene where uh, Sam Waterston, pre-Law and Order days, is telling himself a joke and a story to keep him... Uh, working towards a success in the, in the middle of the movie he 's in a very desperate situation, and he tells this long joke, and the joke ends up with when you have bad news was to tell somebody you don 't just tell them you work yourself up to it by saying you know the cat 's on the roof you don 't just say that the cat died, you say the cat's on the roof and the fire had to come, fire truck had to come and blah blah blah. I say all that to say this: Maria and I had always had an agreement that if we either one of us ever had terrible news to tell each other, we would do it that way we wouldn 't just say this happened." But work our way up to it. So she says, what's up? And I said, so last night um, I have really bad news. And she goes, okay. And I said, no, Maria, this is really bad news. And she goes, okay. I said, Maria says, this is really, really, really bad news. Now I had made sure beforehand that her roommate who was on the trip with her was in the room with her. I did not want her in that room by herself when I talked to her. And I very slowly laid out that Ellie had been on the beach and the wave had come in and and took my time. And I heard my daughter fall apart over the phone screaming that it can't be true. This had to be a lie. That's bad enough. But when she's 9,000 miles away and there's nothing I can do about it, it it's the most horrendous moment of my life. And I remember... um, I got off the phone, and I just collapsed on the sidewalk and bawled. I didn't know what to do with myself. Roger's coming back in the story here in a second. So all this happens. I was using Roger's phone because mine was not working. We went through the rest of the day. We did a, a news interview with the newscasters that came down, taking care of all kinds of stuff, get back, and it's now been a day and a half since Elliot's been gone, well, about 24 hours. And I'm hot and sticky and sweaty and exhausted. And I finally go in and take a shower. And as I'm in the shower, it literally hits me. My son is literally and actually dead. I'm never going to see him again. The reality of that hit me for the first time. And I stepped out of the shower. I dried off and got dressed. And then I just lost it. All I remember is I remember sliding down um, the wall of the bathroom, and landing on the ground, and just sobbing. And I, th- I think I called out to Roger or Susie for somebody to please come. And then I, it's really vague. Roger could probably give you more information, but Roger just sat there with me and put his arm around me and let me cry for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't know how long it was. Uh, Along, do you remember how long that whole thing took? Seemed like forever. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Did, yeah. what, what, what do, you, do you remember specifics that maybe you and I have never talked about? No, I just remember holding you, and I felt like kind of taking on a
0: mother role and just kind of that shh kind of thing. And, and I just let you do it for as long as you wanted to, but I, I can't remember how long it actually lasted.
1: Yeah. Um, so if I know Roger, he wants me to stop talking about him, so I'll I just finish with a couple more things. Um, I am, as I mentioned earlier, I have a thing about dates, and I got to, Elliot died in July. I got to December 31st, and we're about to step into 2008. Only I had to step into 2008 without my son, and I don't want to do that. Because in 2007, my son was still alive. In 2008, he's going to be dead the entire year. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have 2008 get here, ever. And I just, I don't, I don't know if I would call it becoming irrational, but I became unconsolable. I called up Roger. Now, this is New Year's Eve. Roger's got a nice looking wife. He's probably got big plans for New Year's Eve. And he just took the time. And I remember at one point, because I remember I noticed this in the clock, I started talking and crying and sobbing. And I went 25 minutes nonstop, and Roger never said a word. He just let me get it all out. In the 12 years since, especially those first five years, we'll call it, Roger was there every time I needed a hand, every time I needed a shoulder, whether I was angry, sad, whatever. But better than that, he had the wisdom to ask me some of the most amazing questions. And I wish now I should have written them down in a notebook because he asked me some amazing questions like, well, what's it like to think about this particular item with your son being gone? Things that other people would never ask me. And it was good. It was healing for me to express that. But the depth of love it showed that he really worried and was concerned about me is something I'll take with me the rest of my life. And, and I know, and this is the last thing I'll say, I promise Roger, then we'll be done. Elizabeth, I know at the end of my life, when I look back and I think about the blessings I've had in my life, besides my family, I will be amazed that God chose to bless me with a man like Roger in my life for so long. Because if I had designed the perfect friend, it wouldn't have looked like him. It it wouldn't have have been that good. Roger is just that exceptional man. And I, I think you can hear my voice how much I love the guy. And incredible, he loves me the same way. That I can't explain at all.
0: (laughs) I love the Roger praise. He fully, fully... Fully deserves it. And you're fortunate. Again, I, I want him for my best friend, but you have him. Have so him. he's already taken. Yep. Uh, Roger just happens to be the engineer, engineer here at KKPZ. He does a wonderful job. And fortunately, by the grace of God, I got to meet him about 25 years ago. He was good friends with my roommate at the time. So God really brings us all together, full yep. circle. And yeah. there he is with a beautiful beaming face and we love you and many do so you deserve your moment here and i appreciate you merit opening up because men probably you find this too don't open up so greatly about friendship right
1: it's so important i and like i said i have a lot of very very close friends and and i could spend 20 minutes on each one of them (laughs) but more than any of them uh other than my wife jill uh roger is the dearest friend i've ever known i have told him things i've never told another soul uh, and I know that he's told me things that he's never told anybody else. I I would trust him, I would trust him with my children's life. That's how much I trust him and love him.
0: Nice. Yeah,
1: but that's enough for Roger.
0: <laughs> all right. So you found out that there were people on six continents p- praying for your family during all this.
1: Yes, uh, that's one of those good things about the internet. Um, it it obviously our church was contacted, and they contacted other churches in the area, and the people in those congregations contacted other congregations you know, in the Northwest, and then throughout the country, and then eventually it got over to Europe. And I actually heard stories of people years later that, that were living in Belgium at the time and said, I remember you. You were the guy that lost his son in the, in the water, and we, we our church prayed for you in Belgium. I'm going, what? And yeah, I mean, literally every, every continent but Antarctica, and I can't even say not Antarctica, I just don't know for
0: sure. <laughs> nice. So you found during this time, the Coast Guard really had predicted that Elliot would be found south of the border of Oregon and California, maybe even San Francisco, the way the tides were going. But 16 days after he disappeared, you heard that a young man was found just north of Cannon Beach, and you just knew in your heart this was... Yeah.
1: We didn't actually find out for six more days. We didn't get an official identification, but obviously from the from the uh, size of the young man and where he'd been found, we knew it was Elliot.
0: And so we we did recover his body 16 days later. And I, I can't even say what was that like? Because how could you even ask a father to explain what that's like? Um
1: I, I don't know. And, and, and I say that mainly because his mom really dealt with it more than I did. I was back to work full time. I couldn't really take more time off And there wasn't really anything for me to do. So she really handled all the arrangements. And um, I mentioned in the book, uh, Cynthia and I are divorced, but we have a very good relationship. Um, She's a good friend. And and I'm one of those really, really blessed men that my former wife and my wife now really like each other a lot. In fact, sometimes that's almost scary because they tell stories about me to each (laughs) other. Uh, But no, Cynthia was amazing. And she had to take care of all those kind of arrangements.
0: How far did she actually live from the beach?
1: She lived on the beach. On the beach. So basically... If you you went out on her front porch, that was the ocean.
0: Because you mentioned that too a couple times. You're on the porch, you're looking in the water, you're on the porch, and that wonderful man comes by and you have the conversation. And real briefly here, we need to wrap it up, but I want to explain. The man who you had a conversation with, you found out later, came to you at at your son's memorial and said, this makes me change how I have a relationship with my children. Yes,
1: yes. His name was Brent, and he had provided a coat for me. And uh, he was the only person in Cannon Beach I met that I... Remembered, and he came up to me at Ellis Memorial, and I remembered him. And he says, "I want you to know, says so your son's death has changed my relationship with my children." That that simple little conversation carried me through a lot of rough nights over the next two years.
0: You've been listening to KKPZ thirteen thirty a.m. The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest Merritt Herring, who's written the book Lessons from a Son's Life and Death about his son passing away at the beach. And until we meet again next week.